Let's read the passage. I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard Bible. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, we're looking at this book of First Peter, and it's all about... Uh, the need to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there may not seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. And the book basically has a purpose statement and then two separate kind of fraternally twinned parts. And we're in that second part. We're in the uh, section here at the bottom right of that diagram. Faith Under Fire uh, for Kyleen Driggs or Steve... Uh, uh, Skinner, or for Amanda Birch, or for Bonnie Foreman, Faith Under Fire 102. He covered the basics of our understanding of faith that saves and works that should uh, profess and be an expression of our faith in the first section. Now we're talking specifically about Faith Under Fire 102, submission, the importance of submission to the will of God, uh, even in the face of very perplexing Suffering. Now, if we could take that purpose statement there and paraphrase it, it says something like this. Uh, to every believer in this room, whether you're 99 or 9, uh, you're a spiritual alien, and you're only going to be here for a short period of time. And so with that perspective as spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth, Christians, Mike Palovic, David uh, Yeager, uh, Julie Demerson, should not be controlled by our emotions but we should consistently live our faith, no matter whether it's raining or sun shining or having good things happen or bad things happen, consistently live out our faith centered on our Lord Jesus Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, as it were, so that, among other things, but this is particularly emphasized in this book, that unbelievers who slander us, can you imagine uh, unbelievers slandering Christians and Christian uh, beliefs, and it can happen. So that unbelievers who slander us because we're believers will see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to Him, to Christ in faith. So we're going to be looking at, uh, the perspective we need to persevere when we're facing especially perplexing problems. And you'll see how that message fits nicely into the overall message of the book. But uh, let's pray for, uh, is our custom, let's pray for our teachability to God's Word. This is a spiritual thing here. This isn't just uh, Bible trivia time and you can walk away with a couple of facts you hadn't heard before. This is really kind of spiritual brain surgery we're doing here. You know, Romans 12 says, uh, live your life a living sacrifice uh, by being transformed. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind, by by, you know, embracing a uh, Christ-centered, divine viewpoint perspective. So that's kind of what we're doing up here. So, um, you know, we should never take this thing for granted. I mean, it's, I'm surprised that the page, pages don't spark when you touch them because, I mean, the Holy Spirit inspires this. It's, he's preserved the text. You've got a good English translation. We'll walk through it. And hopefully two things will happen today. Uh, when we're done, Julie, uh, you can read through verses 7 through 11 and kind of know what it means in your Bible. That's interpretation. That's that's good. That's that's worth the price of admission right there. So that's interpretation. But launching off of interpretation, we have application. It's not just what does this text mean? What does the meaning mean to me you know, as a believer? Uh, and there's some prophecy here, and there's some spiritual gifts here, and interesting topics, but the bottom line is... Just continue with the Lord and continue with God's people when you'd rather quit, when it's painful to do so, when you're you're not feeling it kind of thing. 
So we need to pray for our teachability, uh, especially in a book like this one, and also for those who protect and service. I'm <clears throat> thinking about uh, firefighters and peace officers, interactive military, and uh, you know, uh, we got a we got a judgment call here, Carla, because I'm perfectly fine keeping John Christian on the collage uh, indefinitely, but he's is he, is he out? He's out. So the guy in the upper right, we knew there was at least one Christian in the army. John Christian's the guy's name, but he's no longer active military, so we'll we'll leave him up there for a while. Um, but uh, so this isn't everybody we know that we pray for in that area. But right in the middle there is uh, who's the guy right in the middle there, Meg? Is familiar? Yeah, he's got a two-year-old boy, right? Yes, Scott is, in my opinion, was the best helicopter pilot in the Coast Guard, but he's been kicked upstairs to work with the Senate, uh, representing the Coast Guard, uh, to the United States Senate. And apparently he didn't tell some of those people how to vote last week, but you know, it's probably, yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's go ahead and pray. And, uh, you know, Lloyd is a, is a, is a great servant, a very humble man, uh, uh, but he's got pictures of his tomato uh, stalks this year, and they're no lie; they're like eight feet tall. I mean, it looks like you're looking like it looks like a redwood tree. All these tomato plants, man. Uh, he's act, he's got one on his phone. You can you can look at that later. Okay, so, but so Lord, please uh, pray for us. Okay, you know a big uh, concept in this passage is is loving. Other Christians, and we want to define that term very specifically in a minute, but, uh, the original Greek text has several words for love, erotic love, and, uh, friendship love, and family love, but this is the word found in our passage today for just kind of a, uh, uh, a relaxed mental attitude where you're seeking other people's highest good consistent with God's glory, consistent with God's will. So we're going to talk about that, but for a long time, uh, for a long time, I used to sign, or at the end of my email messages, I would I would say sloppy agape, agape love. This is kind of love. sloppy agape. I thought it was kind of cute. Sloppy agape, you know, Brad or whatever. And uh, several years ago, Sonia uh, called me on that and said, you know, with a song in her heart and a twinkle in her eyes, she said, "That's gross, Pastor Brad. I mean, no, you shouldn't be saying sloppy agape." And I said, oh, you know, I just kind of thought it was cute, but you know, if it's a problem, you know, uh, well, give me some suggestions. So she gave me some suggestions, and then I worked on some other things, and so now I just put nothing, or shalom all y'all, or something like that, or whatever, whatever I'm feeling. But I've been working on that, and I, I wanted to share with you possible new closings for my email messages. I'm not going to use sloppy agape. You're a college-educated clergyman. And if you're listening uh, on the World Wide Web, I just totally misspelled all those words trying to be funny. But that's why they laughed. You're amazingly awesome yet incredibly humble pastor. I, yeah, I kind of thought that'd be what I'd get on that one. Rocking on for the Rock of Ages. Hoping you're having a lucky, lucky, lucky day. I don't believe in luck, but, you know. And then finally, this is Brad McCoy, and I approve this message. Yeah. Okay. We're going to look at the perspective Christians need to persevere in the face of even our most perplexing problems. And basically, uh, what this passage is saying, in view of the strategic times in which we live, we're, we're uh, on the precipice of the end times. The church age is a special Mystery that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but in the aftermath of the events of the first coming of Christ, we've got this special period in cosmic history, and at any moment, the end times could begin. Now, they, we've been waiting for a while, but remember, Abraham in the Old Testament was given certain key promises about Jesus, and Abraham lived in about 2000 B.C., we live in roughly 2000 AD. So I know God likes symmetry. So he's right on time. It's not a problem. But yeah, just the very character of this period we live in 
is such it's inherently strategic in the big picture of God's plan. So in view of the strategic times in which Peter's readers lived, and we still are living in the same period, the church age period in which we live, and the perplexing problems, and all of us, none of us are bulletproof, will inevitably face these in the world. It's essential for Christians everywhere, whether you're in Duncan or Dan, Dan Fur in uh, southern Sudan, Sudan, where there's been so much persecution and horrible atrocities, whether we're living in the first century or the 21st century, to continue to commune with God. You're just never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, even though it's awfully tempting to from our limited perspective. But you have to steel yourself to realize you can give him the benefit of the doubt, even if you can't picture any good thing that could be uh, why God's permitting all this stuff to happen to you and around you. And number two, we've got to continue to commune with God's people. So that's uh, the simple breakdown to a more complex set of ideas here. Look at verse 7. In light of the strategic times in which we live and the problems we're inevitably going to face, we need to continue to commune with God. The end of all things is at hand. Uh, that word near doesn't mean near. It means at hand, imminent, overhanging, could happen at any minute. Uh, human history, there's a bad analogy, but it's like a hand grenade with an easy-to-access pin. As soon as the pin's pulled, you're going to get a whole new situation around you, and that's the very nature of this period we live in between the first and second coming of Christ. The end of all things is at hand. The word for end, telos, doesn't mean the conclusion of something, but the consummation of something. At Halliburton, somebody might say, we're going to start a new project to come up with this world-class pump that will give us 22% more efficiency. And the end of this project is to come up with a pump like that that's lighter, less expensive, uh, more friendly to the environment, and will give us all these things. That's the end of the project, meaning the purpose of the project, the consummation of the project. After they find that, build that pump, it'll be designed, it won't evolve. You can get all the pieces there and shake them, and you're never going to get a pump. But, uh, you know, that's not the ending. That's really the consummation allows you to move on to something better when you use the pump. So we're waiting for the coming of Christ for the church. That could happen at any instant. And I've often said, we're going to talk about imminency, the idea of imminence in a minute, um, in a bit more detail, but I've often said, uh, I've never really heard anybody say this, but I've often thought a skeptic could say, well, the passage is this wrong, uh, or um, you Christians, you know, are kind of living with this false hope, or at least all the generations of Christians prior to this, even if Jesus does come back next week, everybody else was thinking he was going to come too, and it didn't happen. Well, you know what? The scripture never says it's going to, you can set a date. Does Jesus warn you about setting dates? But people like Harold Camping, whose, his problem wasn't he set dates. That was a problem. But he was a her- heretic. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. Thought his group was the only true church. His radio program was the only true church. You know, some people thought that about my radio program, but we told them it's not true. Um, yeah, so, uh, but here's the thing. Uh, each one of us, I mean, all the way from the Apostle Paul, uh, to Paul Yeager, okay? All those people have been one heartbeat away from being with the Lord anyway. So we, Old Testament believers should have been living with an expectancy of seeing God because you can have a heart attack or something. Uh, today a bus could run over you. Back then an ox cart could run over you. I mean, things can happen. Accidents happen. So I've always felt like, now this wasn't designed to kind of get their hopes up. In fact, remember in John 21, uh, Peter's interacting with the resurrected Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, you know, Peter's quite, not quite sure whether he's still fit for service. And Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Uh, and you know, you're, you're young and fit now, Peter, but in a, in a, in a little while, you're going to be older and people who you don't like are going to kind of bind you and control you and kill you, uh, predicting his martyr's death. And so Peter gets real convicted. He says, John, the author of the gospel, John's kind of very near there, and he says, how about this guy? What's going to happen to this guy? You told me what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be bound up and martyred. And what does Jesus say, famously? He says, hey, big boy, you got to be your number one science project, okay? Don't worry about him. If I want him to stay on earth until I come back, that's not your problem. You don't have to worry about my calling for him. You worry about uh, my calling for you. So 
and he was saying, you know, if I wanted him to stay. And then what was the rumor going around the church, according to the, that chapter? It, yeah, the, the people in the church distorted that, that John uh, would be alive when Jesus came back. Was John, did John die before Jesus came back? Yeah, he was the last apostle to die late in his old age. But uh, every generation of the church has been told, you might be the generation. Today could be the day the Lord comes back, and the event that's going to take the church out of the world will initiate the end times. And so uh, James refers to that, Jesus refers to that, Paul refers to that. Here, the, the consummation of the whole purpose of the church aid leading to age leading to the end times where it would be obvious that uh, Jesus is Lord because he's going to visibly, supernaturally, undeniably end human history on God's program and timing. The end, the consummation of all things is at hand. Therefore, stop doubting, pouting, and dropping outing, and second-guessing God and dropping out of fellowship with other Christians. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Don't let your emotions control you here. Uh, and he says, especially one thing for the purpose of prayer. And that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, you've got to have sound judgment and sober spirit, uh, apparently to have uh, effective prayer. Quite often, uh, we get emotional in our prayers and that's fine as long as the emotions are appreciators, right? Uh, but not initiators. And, you know, uh, many years ago now, it was 1992. Uh, on our wedding anniversary, I had the privilege of driving Debbie to the hospital to get a, a scan on her head because they thought she had a brain tumor. And uh, during that ordeal, when he, she had all these crazy neurological symptoms. By the way, if you don't recognize that really good-looking lady in the back, uh, I'm talking about Meg, of course. No, I'm talking about Debbie. Uh, that's my first wife who spent this summer in Texas. For She was needed. But I needed her up here too, so I'm very, I'm very happy to have her back. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, for me, Trey, you know, I prayed so hard for Debbie's situation there, and and God totally resolved it in a fairly within a couple of months. So we're very blessed. But I just kind of ran out of stuff to say intellectually. I'm kind of analytical, you know, and uh, I know some of these Greek words and stuff, and so I can pray with, using all that stuff. Talking about. Superpowered prayer, you know, when you're using Greek and Hebrew words, you know, if you get desperate enough, you'll do anything, you know. But I kind of ran out of stuff to say, and I just would kind of just look up and groan, and then I realized what uh, Romans 8 was talking about, that, that he'll take your groanings. But in general, most of the time, that's why Jesus gives us a model prayer, we ought to be able to, uh, be thinking clearly as we do most of our prayer life. We're talking about the end of time, end of all things is hand. Um, here's a, a basic breakdown of Bible prophecy, as I understand it, based on the book of Revelation. Those chapter references go back to content in the book of Revelation. John chapter 1, uh, the risen Jesus tells John to write this book. In chapter 2 and 3, he talks about the churches in Asia Minor, talking about the dynamics of the church age. That's the age we live in now. Then we see a door open in heaven and John being cut up. And we see... In chapter 4 and 5 in Revelation, the scene in heaven just before the rapture, or just before the end times break out on earth. So it's kind of like he's taken up rapture-like, and then we see the control room before the great tribulation. Uh, the prophets in the Old Testament talked about this time of Jacob's trouble, where you'd have the Jews in the land, uh, surrounded by enemies, uh, and, uh, you know, since they got kicked out of the land in 70 A.D., and didn't get back in the land until 1948, it was very easy for Christians to kind of say, well, all that's going to be fulfilled allegorically, kind of symbolically, because there's no Jews in the land. There's no way the Jews are going to get back in the land. They got back in the land. And the book of the book of Revelation talks about that seven-year period that happens right after the rapture takes place, and that leads to the second coming of Christ. Uh, now, here's what you need to know. And I think this is a pretty interesting take on it. The Old Testament. What, what's the Old Testament? The books of the Bible, right? Carol, written before the coming of Jesus, right? The Old Testament predicted two different advents of the Messiah, the Savior. There are prophetic passages in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus, Isaiah 53, 
as the, the Lamb of God, as the one who's going to pay the sin debt of the world. Then there are passages like Zechariah 12 that talk about the Messiah coming out of heaven and ending human history on God's terms and setting up a kingdom on the earth. Well, in fact, the Old Testament talked about one Messiah with two distinct as, as uh, advents, I should say, two different uh, uh, incarnations, incarnational ministries on earth. First as the lamb, then as the lion. And, and you guys know that. Most of you know that. That's, that's not new material. But in a similar kind of a way, in an analogous way, the New Testament talks about two distinct aspects of the return. We're waiting, you know, we're living between the first coming and the second coming. We get that. But the New Testament talks about two aspects of the return of Christ. The first is the rapture event. Rapturo uh, is the Latin of the Greek word that says to be caught up that you see in First Thessalonians 4, a rapture passage. But uh, the rapture will initiate the end times, and then the second advent will conclude human history. Anybody want to take a crack at that one? As we have known it. Okay, so let's go back to our chart here. So, you know, um, and again, this is Book of Revelation uh, is the basis of it, but uh, Peter's writing about there, and, you know, we're living out here, but it's all in the same period of time from kind of God's point of view. And for that entire period of time, we've been waiting for the coming of Christ to take the church. It's imminent. It's impending. It's at hand. It could happen any minute. And then the believers will be, uh, there's a generation of Christians, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all die. We will not all sleep. But we're all going to be changed in a moment. And first, that's First Corinthians 15. First Thessalonians 4 says we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So we're waiting for that, and that's an impending, uh, imminent event. Uh, the example I like to use is kind of, if this is Old Testament history, Old Testament history is very linear. Let's do it this way. Uh, uh, let's do it this way. Uh, I'm not sure I want to do it. Uh, Old Testament history is real linear. No, let's do it this way. I got it. I should work these out. I wasn't trying to be funny. Old Testament history is linear. You know, the Old Testament prophets are talking about the coming of the Messiah with two different aspects, but boom. And then he shows up, and he does his thing. And ever since then, history has been on a precipice. If this, if going from west to east is linear, now human history from God's point of view isn't meaningless, it's still important, but we're on a precipice, okay? And we're waiting for the rapture event, which will initiate the end times, and then we're going to start going linear again, waiting for the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming, which changes everything when Christ will visibly, supernaturally, undeniably. There'll be no atheists in connection with the latter part of the tribulation. Everybody is going to be very upfront about where they're coming from. So, you know, it's exciting. It ought to be comforting that that could happen any moment. It ought to be convicting. You don't want to be, you know, doing really evil things like, I don't know, rooting for OU or something, you know. When Jesus comes back, he's going to say, why were you for them, you know? Now, I'm kidding, of course. But, uh, yeah, that's that's what that is. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, since the Lord could come for us at any moment, and if he doesn't come in this generation, you could go to him at any moment. You know, people have... Heart attacks and strokes and all kinds of things that can happen. You're not, you never put on your schedule. Be focused seriously, way above the emotional level to keep on communing with God, especially in prayer. A couple things I want to say about prayer. My working definition of prayer is prayer is a grace channel. Okay. Sonia, uh, or Shauna has this given to her, uh, by God's grace. She can connect with him 24-7. You know, even with a cell phone, you can't always connect with everybody instantaneously. You know, sometimes I have it off. Sometimes my wife's in Texas, and this is in the bedroom, and I'm in the living room watching the Golf Channel, and I've got it. I usually have it on uh, mute because I'm in many places where it would be very embarrassing if the phone went off, and sometimes I forget to unmute it. So even with these things, we don't necessarily connect with everybody 24-7. We think we can, but we can't. But God's there for Shauna and for every one of us 24-7. It's a grace channel communication by which believers seek and submit to the will of God. This is not 
giving God a to-do list. He's got to run around and make sure we're happy with him this week. Uh, we're seeking submitting his will, knowing that our prayers are part of the process God's designed to work out his will. So it does actually mean something, right? Now, if we had more time, we'd go to the Lord's Prayer, but Matthew 6, where you find it, and when you analyze the Lord's Prayer, Carol, it's not about you being a consumer and telling God what you want him to do for you this week. It's our Father in heaven, so you're thinking about heaven, not just earth. Hallowed be your name, not hallowed be my name. Thy kingdom come, not my ship come in. Thy will be done, not my will be done. The whole thing is not what you're going to learn from Joe Olstein. He doesn't teach prayer like that. It's a whole different thing. Now, but that's heresy, but nobody seems to notice, and that's, I guess, it's a free country. At least it used to be, right? But uh, that's the dynamics. And so he's saying, hey, no matter what happens to you, realize that you're, this is too strategic a time for you to put yourself on the spiritual disabled list. And you've got to focus uh, on continuing with, uh, with, with the Lord. And a big part of that is prayer. Now, what does Jesus say about prayer? Yeah, I think he basically says 90% of your prayer life ought to be just you and him one-on-one and nobody watching, you know. Uh, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of men to be noticed by them, you know. I think there is a, a place for group prayer, and I think we kind of build group prayer into our system, don't we? I mean, you know, it's not, we're not hoping it happens. We build it in the system once, you know, it's the second hour of Sundays. But the vast majority of your prayer really kind of, your prayer life kind of can be a good litmus test for where you're doing, where you are spiritually and how you're relating to that. Now, let's go to our overall idea here. We need to continue to commune with God because of the strategic nature of the situation, regardless of the problems we're facing, and we need to continue to commune with God's people. Uh, this is kind of uh, what Jesus taught was the essence of Scripture for Carla, for Sue, uh, for uh, Blanche. I mean, what's the greatest commandment, they ask him. And they're trying to get him to say anything... There's 613 of them. They've counted them. So they're hoping he'll pick one and they can say, well, how about the six, 612 other ones you didn't mention? You're sliding scripture. But he went synthetic on them. Brilliant analytical mind that he has. Perfect. What's the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the big umbrella is love the Lord. That's verse 7 here. The... uh Dynamic under that umbrella, loving other people, is verses 8 through 11. He gives you more verses on that because uh, uh, maybe it's harder to do that. I've known a lot of people, including seminary graduates, who love the Lord so much they can't get along with Christians. Who love the Lord so much they can't handle serving Christian churches because some of the people in the churches aren't perfect. And when they find out that uh, they're not perfect, it's not a perfect situation. And it's yeah, it's one thing when lay people get shocked because they find out the pastor's not perfect or the church isn't perfect. It's when Dallas seminary people, they should know this. They teach you this at the seminary. <laughs> called ecclesiology. <laughs> it's not even an elective. It's a required course. So let's move to that uh, dynamic under the umbrella we need to continue continue, continue to, uh, with God, uh, even despite the most perplexing issues we deal with, and with God's people. And for Peter, that's primarily in your local church. Okay, now you know I love the local church. I believe the local church. Uh, I loved the local church before I became a professional pastor, uh, professional twenty four seven Christian. You know, uh, connected to a local church. I mean, we're in dental school. You think 15 hours a semester is tough? I mean, we were doing like 55 semester hours, they told us a semester. It's just insane what you've got to do at dental school. Ask Aaron, you know. And I'm the deacon in charge of cleaning our church. And we live 20 miles away from our church. So I had like, uh, I worked five and a half days, half the day, half day Saturday in the dental lab trying to catch up. I was, I was always behind because I had bad eyesight. <laughs> and I left my dear wife. Who thought she'd married a dentist and she ended up with a preacher, by the way, so we got married under false pretenses. Uh, yeah, just, you know, five, twelve or fourteen hour days at school and preparing and then all morning at the dental lab on Saturday. And then I would drive from the medical center to our church west of town and clean the church every week as the deacon. That was my job. We had two deacons. Outside guy, he did the mowing, weed eating. 
And since I'm helpless with weed eating, I can mow, but I'm not a good weed eater. I mean, when I finish my weed eating, it kind of looks like a bad hairline, you know, along my sidewalk. So I've kind of given up weed eating. I'm just praying that God would just kill all my weeds, you know. But uh, faith without works is dead or something like that. But uh, So I'm the guy who cleans up the church. It was a small church. It was uh, half this size. But I'm doing that. And uh, it never dawned on me that maybe I should tell him I'm too busy to do that. I just thought, hey, I could clean the church, you know. And my, Debbie never complained. I don't remember you helping me very often, but uh <laughs> couldn't think of it. Now I'm in trouble. Uh, but uh, look at this. Uh, verse 8, above all. And you might say, well, hold it. This is more important than communing with God. Now he's shifting gears now. I've talked about God. Now let me talk horizontal relationships when it comes Hey, Henry, when it comes to your relationship with other believers in this church, you guys are going to camp and you guys are tight with uh, the church in Texas and other believers and stuff. That's cool too. But above all, or the Greek text says, before anything else, before we talk about how you relate to other Christians, keep fervent in your agape for one another. Now, you know, you can't control your emotions, okay? If I tell you, Michelle, be ecstatically happy right now. Are you ecstatically happy right now? And it's going to take her a while. If I said, hey, at the end of this service, I'm going to give you a million dollar check and it won't bounce, you'd probably be ecstatically happy. You know, happiness is your best when you happenings. But uh, if I said, I want you to be real sad right now. You can't just flip the switch like that. So you can't command emotions. And when we're commanded to love one another, it's not about emotions, it's about volition. This agape love is not... Emotional, it's volitional. It's choosing to seek other people's highest good consistent with God's will. So you're not going to lie, cheat, and steal to them, among other things. But it frees you up to serve people, um, even when they don't deserve it, even when they're not perfect, even when they don't notice and tell you how great you are. That's okay because that's the re- not the reason you're doing it. So we're, when we're talking about communing with connecting with the people of God, especially in your local church, keep fervent in your agape for one another because agape covers or I would translate, smothers a multitude's, multitude of sins. Now, what's all that about? Oh, my goodness. Notice the yellow there. Uh, first, it says, uh, keep fervent in your love for one another. Okay, in context, who's the one another? Other people in their churches. Now, realize, who are we writing this book to? Peter says, I'm writing to epidemois, to people who are aliens because they've been forced from their homes in and around Antioch of Syria to get away from the bad guys into Turkey. And so you've got 15 Christians in one little community and 10 in another village here and 6 here and 22 over there. you got all kinds of small little enclaves of Christians who've spread out to get away from the persecution in Syria. And now we're in Turkey. And they would meet in people's homes on Sunday mornings. And if you couldn't fit everybody in the home, you just meet outside next to a home. But that's important to know because uh, when we uh, read, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, by the way, you got to learn how to read the Bible here. Why is he saying be hospitable to one another without complaint, Carol? Why is he saying do this without complaining? Because some of them are complaining. That's, that's why he does things like that. Well, if you complain about hospitality, you obviously were never regenerate in the first place, right? Or you lost your salvation. Not necessarily. Mm-mm. The reason they warn us about this stuff is because he's seeing some of this stuff. And apparently, you know, uh, Syntyche, uh, was, had, had signed up the sign up list and the second Sunday in, uh, August, you can, we can have church at my house. Okay? And, and of course, uh, Euodia has signed up for the third Sunday, but Euodia forgot and she had something else anyway. So Syntyche has to do it twice in a row. And boy, that's bad. So now they can't get along, you know. That's actually in Philippians, so I'm not sure that happened here. But that kind of thing happens. But yeah, uh, the hospitality here, when you think of hospitality, what do you think about? Having somebody over for lunch after church or maybe meeting them at a restaurant and picking up the tab, that's hospitality, right? But in context, I think he's talking about continue showing love to one another, especially your local church, and sign up to take a turn regularly to host the church, you know, and don't complain about it. Because that's kind of what they... The church. They didn't have church buildings. You didn't have church buildings until the fourth century when we became legal finally. Uh, when I got here, I know Sue remember this, in 88, Wednesday nights, we only had half the building then. Wednesday nights was the kids' ministry, 
And prayer meeting was at somebody's house. Somebody would sign up every month. And, uh, you know, the Corbins would sign up one month. And so in August, the adults would drop off their kids here and then would go to prayer meeting. And we didn't have 50 people showing up for prayer meeting. We had maybe 12 people showing up for prayer meeting or 15, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, super uh, Summer Saturday is kind of like that. Somebody's uh, kitty let y'all meet at her house. And I didn't hear her complain, so I guess she was applying that pretty good. Debbie's going to do it next next time. Hopefully she won't complain. She never does. Uh, then we've got uh, the monthly men's fellowship. Talking about hospitality. You know, we, we've been, we, we, we can meet here if we need to, but we've been meeting in people's houses. Uh, in August, uh, I don't have a nesting place yet. In September, we're going to meet at the, at the Lovett's, but, so if you'd like to, uh, to show a little hospitality, as long as you promise not to complain, uh, let us know. We're going to do it the last Sunday in August. It's the Sunday before Labor Day weekend. But, uh, let's think about this word agape a little bit more. It is a, it's, it's, it's volitional, not emotional. It's seeking other people's highest good. So, you know, motherhood is a great example. I watched Bonnie with Asa and Ashton and now with little Brad who's in utero, right? I mean, Baker's been taken. We can't, can't have Baker, uh, but you can't have Mason, but you can have Brad if you want it. Uh, you know, but, uh, you see, uh, you know, young mothers just, uh, are always tired. They're always stressed. But, you know, don't get, you know, don't get between a little cub and mama bear because you're in trouble, you know? Uh, I was at Walmart like a week ago. Debbie's out of town and, uh, had my basket. Of course, it's busy checking out. And this kind of frazzled mom, about 35, and her daughter standing there. And, you know, uh, she had a bunch of stuff. And there's somebody behind me. So I got the little plastic strip because I had like this much at the end of the, the belt, you know. And I was kind of putting my, some of my stuff up there. And then I, so I kind of leaned on my shopping cart. And I'm telling you, it moved maybe half an inch. And so I'm still like two uh, feet away from this person. And she's uh, talking to the cashier, and she looks at me, and she says, if that cart hits me, we're going to have trouble. <laughs> I went, huh? And the funny thing is, the, the, the lady doing the cash register is a student of mine who had signed up for the world religion class, and she just told me right before the transaction started, hey, I signed up for your religion class. I'm going to see you, Dr. McCoy, in the fall. And so this person said, that, sh- that shopping cart hits me. We've got trouble. I thought, I didn't get anywhere near you, you know? But uh, some people are just easy to offend, you know. I thought, this would be in the Duncan Banner now, you know. Local pastor accused of assault, you know, at Walmart. <laughs> so sometimes you can't please people. But in our relationships with other people, especially in our church, we ought to be easy to get along with. We should be slow to take offense. And in fact, it says that agape love being lived out covers, I would translate this, smothers a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean you cover up immorality or embezzlement or some gross kind of thing. You process that. This is talking about more interpersonal kind of slice, insults, irritations, stuff like that. You actually, that should sound familiar. Look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Peter's actually citing Proverbs 10 here. And I think if more Christians would apply this, We'd have a lot happier churches and a lot fewer church splits because sometimes you get these gigantic church splits that start over nothing. And sometimes people can get mad at you in church circles. They don't even remember what you did to make them mad at you, but they just know you're not a good person because you did something to make them mad, and they can't let it go. And it wasn't like anything major or some minor thing you didn't know you did in some cases. But notice... uh, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife. There's some people who just, I don't like this, I don't like you, I'm going to find something not to like, and you can always find something not to like, okay, Summer. But love, this would be hesed in the Old Testament, covers all transgressions. not covers up some horrible, terrible thing in the church that the pastor did or an elder did or a deacon did, but just all the kind of minor things that would tend to break the thing down, right? So go back to that, First uh, Peter uh, I would say, uh, but this is, the principle here is don't throw gasoline on a fire. Don't, um, uh, stir the pot. You know, there, there's some people that just aren't happy unless everybody else is miserable. They just love to spread stuff and, and throw gasoline on fires. And I'm just the opposite on that. I'm stop, drop, and roll. 
a big principle is if somebody offends you and it's a big deal to you, don't tell anybody else about it. Go tell them directly, okay? Uh, Dr. Kevin Lehman, who we know as the author of psychologist, he was actually like the registrar at Moody Bible Institute for a while, I think when he was doing his doctorate. And he said the one bad thing about that job was all the secretaries were always arguing each, with each other, you know, uh, at Moody Bible Institute. And he said, but I, I figured I had to, had to finish that because they would all want to come to me individually and tattle on the person they didn't like, one secretary to the other one. And he said, I figured out what to do. When Sally wanted to tell me how bad Mary was, and she started telling me in my office, I'd say, hey, just a minute, Sally, you need to, you and me need to go somewhere. And they would walk, Sally, let's, and they would walk to Mary's desk. They get the names right there, Austin. You know what I mean, okay? One person comes to him. He wants to tattle on the other person. He says, hold, hold on. He didn't say, hey, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm going to take you to her. She said, let, let me, we need to go somewhere together. So he, I guess you can't grab him by the hand. That'd be sexual harassment. But he, I guess he was probably doing this with his hands in his pocket. Let's go down the hall for a minute. Then they go to Mary's desk and say, hey, excuse me for a minute. Uh, Sally's got something she needs to talk to you about. And he said, 90% of the time when I do that, the offended person who in my office was about to quit, oh, you know, it's not any big deal. You know, no problem, you know. Uh, in the same way online people can really get really amped up in ways maybe they would have been more controlled face to face it's the same thing if you want to talk to a third party the more you talk to them the more grieved you can become and at some point that person has to say time out you need to go talk to Sally right doesn't that make sense you, you deal with it in the smallest possible circles as opposed to throwing cherry bombs out there that's what love does so above all show agape to one another That'll deal with the irritants, like people complaining about having to host the church two weeks in a row. And, you know, people will whine and complain about stuff like that. I always thought that Philippians statement, that Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. I think some people mistranslate that. They think it says, do all things while grumbling and complaining. That's not what the text says. The text does not say that. And I know we all have a default position there. Now, so get along with one another. And quit whining about it, okay? And then he says, as each one has received a special gift, everybody at the moment of salvation gets a special capacity or an enhanced capacity to glorify God and serve other people. And you can read about the list. The, the list, I don't think are comprehensive, but 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, uh, have lists of certain kinds of gifts. Pastor, teachers, the one I think I have. But as each one has a gift and multiple opportunities to serve one another, uh, serve as good stewards of what God has given you. And then uh, some commentators have said, basically, look at the list of gifts. You've got uh, teaching gifts and all the other gifts that are aspects of hands-on service. So whoever speaks, that's kind of one big kind of gift, prophet, apostle, or pastor, teacher, is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. I never forget that's what I'm trying to do here, is tell you what the Bible means and what it means to your life. It's not about the teacher. It's the, the teaching that's more important. Uh, the one thing I pray consistently over there is, Lord, give me a clear head because I can sometimes get muddled in a pure heart. And then we'll let it rip. I spent all week getting ready and then, then we let it rip. And it's just like, it's just like working on your golf swing, you know. Here lately I've been hitting it terrible on the range. But, you know, what they tell you to do is work on mechanics on the range. And when you actually play for a score, just hit the target. Just let it be athletic. You know, don't get too analytical. And that's what I do. I'm getting very analytical all week long and get up here and just try to relate it to you guys in a way that will be interesting and understandable. But whoever speaks is supposed to be speaking the Word of God, not the work of Brad or Mike or uh, John MacArthur or whoever your favorite preacher is. Whoever serves, and that's most of the other spiritual gifts, if not all of the rest of them, other than apostle, prophet, and teacher, uh, is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies so that you're doing it in God's power to please Him, His way. It's all about God in you. You know, when I see uh, special servanthood around here, uh, you know, you get to see the human instrument, but you realize God's put that in their heart so that in all things God may be glorified, not uh, Deacon Mike, but God be glorified by Deacon Mike's ministry uh, through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory, dominion forever and ever. Now, uh, I was going to point something out about agape love that drives this whole dynamic of how we relate to other Christians, especially in our local churches, because uh, not all the people in your local church, even this great local church, are as cute as Ron Miller or Brad McCoy. Some of us just, you know, some of you guys aren't as cute as we are. But uh, 
trick question. You know, one passage you hear at most wedding ceremonies is 1 Corinthians 13, right? But, which just talks about agape love. Let's go there real quick. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Uh, even though this is read at wedding ceremonies, and I read it at most wedding ceremonies, because I think that agape love is at the core of your commitment to one another, even though you've got phileo and arao also working, for sure. Um, I think 99% of American Christians just assume that, that those statements you hear at weddings are written in a wedding marriage context. They're not, are they, Blanche? They're written in a body life context. In First Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, as opposed to 2 Corinthians, uh, which is a new way we refer to it now, because that's what the president does. It. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, verse 13, we're in a larger context, 12, 13, 14, about the misuse of spiritual gifts, so everybody will think Brad's cool, because he's got a spiritual gift he uses in front of everybody, and we definitely want everybody to think Brad's cool. And he's saying that's not the way you do it. You need to do it and do everything you do in your connection with other believers motivated by agape. And agape is patient and kind and isn't jealous and isn't arrogant and doesn't act unbecomingly, doesn't seek its own, not selfish, it's not easily provoked, every little thing, uh, doesn't take into account a wrong suffer. Talking about minor love smothers, Multitude of transgressions. It just doesn't make a big deal about every little thing. Doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Rejoices with the truth. Puts up with all kinds of stuff. Keeps on believing despite all kinds of stuff. Hopes, etc. So it's interesting. That's uh, that famous marriage passage in American culture. And it's fine to use it uh, because that kind of love should be in marriage. It's really talking to Christians about how to get along with one another. And then John 3.16. God so loved the world. That's not phileo. That's certainly not arao. It's not storge, family love. It's agapao, which is the verb form of agape. God was seeking his highest glory and our greatest good when uh, he demonstrated his love for us and not while we yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's at the very core of the gospel is this agape love. So continue with God in the midst of your problems and focus on prayer. Start there. Continue in your local church and interacting positively with other believers by manifesting agape love for them and smothering as opposed to spreading every little thing that you could make a big deal about. Uh, be hospitable. Open your home up to the church when you can be used and use whatever gifts and talents and abilities you've got, especially your spiritual gift that makes you very unique. Uh, use that to the glory of God. And... Uh, uh, that's kind of what he's saying in so many words. So let's go home and uh, not go home. Let's go to the swimming pool. No, let's stay here for a while. And uh, hey, we're having swimming this week. Next week, swimming for the kids this week. Next week, after going out song, we're going to have casino day at Blanche's backyard. The kids will stay here. we got a roulette table. We're going to have baccarat. So just so you'll know, because it's just super summer, you know. Uh, the perspective Christians need to persevere in the face of even our most perplexing problems is a mindset that our calling doesn't go away when we're in a crisis. We're supposed to continue to commune with the Lord, continue to commune with other believers. Now, you know, you might have a physical crisis where you've got to miss church for six months. You may be so emotionally scarred by some horrible thing that happened to you, you just aren't able to have normative fellowship with people for a time. But that's just a temp, that's a trans, Transient thing. That's a temporary holding pattern you need to be in. Rather than re- releasing us from our responsibilities of Christian living and ministry and prayer, a tough time should refine us as we continue in our Christian living and ministry. Uh, I'll give you the short version of this conclusion since I went a tad longer than usual. But uh, it's all good though, right? Um, Agape love doesn't allow a believer to see themselves, himself, herself as a consumer, as a religious, spiritual consumer, or a Christian volunteer. I hate those terms. I see that very often in the great evangelical uh, fruited plain. A lot of Christians today think of themselves as spiritual, as spiritual consumers, you know. Now, Scott, when it comes to me, I'm totally a selfish consumer when it comes to dry cleaners, okay? I don't want any loyalty to my dry cleaning guy. Behind the counter, a girl or lady. I don't want to. I don't want to even. 
I, I can I can be their friends, but I don't want to be personally loyal to them as far as my dry cleaning. I'm going to the cheapest, fastest place I can find. Whoever's got the best sale, that's where I'm going this week. I don't go to dry cleaning that much, can you tell? But maybe I need to. But I mean, that's the example I'm using, okay? Uh, I don't have any connection there. Other than that, I'm loyal to a fault, man. You can't beat me away with a stick. But, uh, yeah, I hate it when I see Christians, none of you, but sometimes Christians in America treat church, their faith, like a consumer does. What's, where am I going to get the most that I want is going to make me feel good with the least amount of price? That's what I think about dry cleaning. That's the way some people in the Christian life in America. Or volunteer. Think about a volunteer. By definition, a volunteer can quit any time they want to. You will. I've read the New Testament in the original Greek several different times. The word volunteer relative to your connection with God's Christian doesn't show up. You're not a volunteer. You're a bond slave, okay? You owe this. You owe it to the one who died for you to live for him. If you're not doing that, you're very atypical. You've unplugged yourself from the wall there, but that's in no way normative. Uh, it calls us to be an army in his, a soldier in his army of love. So, you know, don't panic. Just persevere. And I think we'll focus on, hey, I want to center on God, center on my prayer life, realize I need to continue to connect with people of faith, especially in my local church. Um, I think it will help you glorify God in the midst of your problems. Um, Eye of the hurricane. Let me finish with this for Trey and Julie. Eye of the hurricane. I don't use that analogy much anymore, but I grew up in Miami, Florida, had hurricanes fairly often. And right in the center of that hurricane is total, there's, there's tranquility. Okay. You still know you've got problems all around you, but I feel like, you know, God calls us as a Christian not to deny our problems, to deal with them wisely, right? But when we're resting in Christ and really persevering in prayer, we can have, and I, I've had crises where I haven't been in the eye of the hurricane. I just freaked out, you know. But I have had situations where the average person would totally freak out, and I just feel like it's just you have this calm uh, that transcends psychological mechanisms. I call that the eye of the hurricane. And uh, I was kind of thinking about that for you guys this past week, you know. Uh, and I, I think finding that eye of the hurricane is greatly facilitated by applying passages like this. And so keep that in mind next time you're tempted to go to panic palace, and you probably will be, okay? Father, please uh, help us to realize that uh, we don't have a high priest in Jesus who can't sympathize with the kind of stresses and fears and pain emotionally that that we go through in this fallen, broken world that you're ultimately going to fix through your program for the end times. Uh, But help us to just remember as a cardinal principle that pressure isn't a pass from our responsibilities to commune with you and with your people. And I pray we would make that just something that's just an automatic go-to way we think about everything in the ups and downs of life. I want to pray especially for anybody here, and I know there are several that are really facing unexpected, unique stresses and pressures, and uh, I pray that they would uh, find some help in this passage and these wise words, and that you glorify yourself and encourage them today. Help them to find the eye of the hurricane. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.